back. Good morning, Richard. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. A little bit sleepy, but uh, okay. We should go to bed early at night. Well, I have all my preparation to do, (laughs) unlike some people. Three weeks back after the movie hour. Yes. It, Our little absence. I do feel a bit like um, Bruce Campbell at the end of Army of Darkness, where he's where he's been given a sleeping draft to get from the Middle Ages <laughs> back to the present day. Right. But he takes too much, wakes yes. up in the future and screams, <laughs> I slept too long! But uh, that's a bit of a, an esoteric yes. one to start the day off. Yes. Bed Midler starting the programme there, another of her tracks from Beaches, which I think I've said once before on this programme, or maybe twice, or maybe more. That's Make it three my, times a One of my favourite films of all time. Yeah. Yes. So... so Shall we start with what's going on locally? That's a good place to start. Uh, not a lot. I mean, certainly in Anik, because they've got live uh, productions for the next couple of weeks. But a quick reminder that the 15th and the 16th of June, The Woman in Black is coming to Anik. Which, if you haven't seen it already, is shaping up to be one of the best films of the year. And yeah. uh, a very good old-fashioned ghost yes. story. Tickets going very quickly. The box office number is 01665 510785. Rather more going on at the uh, the Maltings um, tonight at seven thirty. They've got salmon fishing. Yeah, which um, I'm just checking to see if it's in the Yemen, I should say. Yes, as yes. opposed to just in general. Um, I was checking to see if it's still in the top ten. But you know, Lassa Halstrom, you know what you're going to get. It's predictable. It's saccharine. It's just schmaltzy enough to get away with it. I think that you and McGregor and Emily Blunt are very charming. So, no, it's tosh, but it's good tosh. It is out of the top ten, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So. It, so has, it has been a while since you have to explain we... to me what films are, won't you? Yes. Um, All <laughs> in good time, Richard. On to Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock, they've got uh, Street Dance 2. Which, you know, completely unremarkable sequel to a film that in itself wasn't much to write home about. You know, if you want to see dancing in 3D, then fine, but... There's, go and watch the original version of Fame if that's what you want. And that's also on Thursday afternoon at two thirty. Back to Wednesday evening, eight thirty. Cinema Paradiso. Is yeah, that- which is great. It's you no know, a film by Giuseppe Tornatore from the late nineteen eighties, an Italian filmmaker, yeah. um, and it's about a young boy. Uh, I forget his name, but it's about a young boy growing up in uh, a provincial town in rural northern Italy who uh, becomes the local, the projectionist of his local cinema, and uh, basically has a surrogate father. It's a really no, it's a film about the history of cinema on the one hand in the way that the artist was, but it's really sweet, really charming, and has a really heartbreaking ending involving kissing scenes. But it's Ooh. very it's very funny. And then next weekend, Saturday, Sunday, 2.30, one I remember us enthusing about when it came out. I do remember some films, you know. Yes. And Cat in Paris. Uh, yeah, I, I think I said that, no, the, the animations reminded me of Tintin, and I, no, I like the kind of the Art Deco 1920s design of it. Um, yeah, I think it's for, one for younger children, but it, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. And certainly, I would take a cat in Paris over Top Cat the movie, which we'll talk about later on. <laughs> that doesn't bode well. Um, and then next Saturday evening, 7 o'clock, Avengers Assemble. Which we'll come to because it's still in the top ten. Is it? Oh, yes, so it is. Yes. Yes, right. One other thing on local films. This afternoon at Rothbury, as part of their um, Jubilee celebrations, uh, they are going to have classic 1952 films at half past four in the Jubilee Hall. Okay, have they so, got a list of any ones that they're showing? No, they haven't. Okay. Do you remember any 1952 films? Well, I'm trying to think. Um, African Queen wasn't 52. That was slightly later, but... Um, I'll have a think and know so, what ones there might uh, be. At the risk of pretending to do some research, I did look it up on Google last night. Go ahead. So, and only the British ones, but there were a lot of British films back in the 1950s. It is true, yes. yeah. So, a very large number. I just picked a few, though. Angels 1-5, starring Jack Hawkins and oh, Michael yeah. Dennison. That's quite good. Yeah. Uh, Curtain Up with Robert Morley and the wonderful Margaret Rutherford. 
Yeah, I like Margaret Rutherford. Yes. Curtain up. Yeah, I can take a leave, yes. but it's okay. Down among the Zed men, Peter Sellers, Harry Seacombe, Spike Milligan. Now that is very odd because that that's the the film of the Goon Show where yes. Michael Benteen was still with them. Yeah. So. That would be yeah, a classic. It's yeah, it's yes. it's it's odd. It's it's it, yes. it's quite good. Uh, home at seven. Marf, uh, Ralph Richardson, Margaret Leighton, Jack Hawkins, and Trent's last case. Michael Wilding, Margaret Lockwood. Remember her and uh, Orson Welles. Mm. What a star cast. Yeah, Orson Welles. Um, I think that would have been just after Touch of Evil, of course, yeah. which is in many ways his finest yes. performance. So some or all or none of those may be at the Jubilee Hall in Rothbury this afternoon. Yes, maybe they'll sneak a, pal, yes. a late period Pal and Pressburger yes. in there as well. And maybe a bit of Pathé news, you never know. Yeah, They're still not? around, aren't they? Shall we go to do the top ten, then? I think we should, yes. Right, so um, number ten. Look at that. Massive £66,100 of takings, so not many people been to see it. Iron Sky. Well, you say that in a, in a sniffy way, but bear in mind that this has only been released in about 20 or 30 cinemas. because so it's, of, it's done very well. It has done very well. I mean, I've been looking forward to this for ages now. It's, it's, a, it's a Scandinavian crowdsourced film where basically they, they managed to get about $4 million basically from asking members of the public. And the, the, the plot is, in 1945, the Nazis went to the moon. In 2018, they're coming back. And, you know, it's it's a crowdsourced B movie pastiche with a supporting role from Udo Kier, who, if you know your science fiction yeah. and horror B movies, is the scientist in Andy Warhol's Flesh for Frankenstein, which is the best 3D film ever made, um, mainly because it involves scenes of an Udo Kier offering awful to the audience in 3D. Um, of course it's not perfect, but it's good, solid, trashy fun, and don't take it too seriously. It's coming out on DVD um, this Monday, so if you haven't got a chance to see it in cinemas, you can get it then. Number nine, The Return of Beauty and the Beast. No, in 2D, it's great. I mean, I think that the original Disney version is almost on a par with the Jean Cocteau version from the 40s, but in 3D, it's a money market. It's a money-making exercise to make up for the fact that Disney's present 3D efforts, John Carter, didn't take as much money as they hoped. Right. Big, um, big row on another radio station yesterday about 3D. I don't know about row because nobody was in favour of it, but <laughs> they were all violently row. agreeing with each other. A one-sided row. Yes. This is the best kind. <laughs> Number eight, The Raid, Redemption. Which is really good. No, it's a martial arts film. Um, the story involves a guy having to break through the multiple floors of an apartment block to get to a mafia boss, and it owes something, obviously, to Die Hard, and John Woo's Hard Boil, Assault on Precinct 13. You have to see it, like all martial arts films, you ultimately go and see it for the choreography rather than the storyline, in the same way as a lot of people used to go and see Bruce Lee's films just for the long interrupted takes of him yeah. fighting people. Um, but no, it's, it is really good fun, and no, it's, I think, an, it's either a 15 or an 18, but either way, you're going to get your fair share of, you no know, blood and gore and so forth, which, you, which is always good in martial arts. Right, number seven, one the critics seem to be loving, Moonrise Kingdom. Yes, yeah, the latest from Wes Anderson, who kind of blows hot and cold, because on the one hand, you've got the Royal Tenenbaums and Life of Credit with Steve Caesar, which are very sort of arch and dry and funny, but then you get things like the Darjeeling Limited, which is a bit up itself, and Fantastic Mr. Fox's last film, which was a classic example of someone taking a children's story and turning it into a film which only appealed to adults because it had all kinds of jokes about existentialism which is not in the Dahl novel at all yeah um, and you didn't need to put that stuff in because obviously the Dahl novel is brilliant in and of itself um, this is a he's back on four now with a story about two young lovers who you know, are, you know are scouts and they go running off into the woods so it owes something to Swallows and Amazons or to some extent Terence Malick's Badlands although obviously they don't commit murder before they go on the run there's a very good performance by Tilda Swinton as a character called Social Services who is yes. very uptight and right. Tilda Swinton's a brilliant actress isn't she yeah um i think 
as with always Anderson stuff, if you're off, if you're put off by kind of the ironic detachment in that kind of film, the kind of stuff that Noah Baumbach tries to get away with, then you will get irritated. But once you get beyond that and you start to realise actually you genuinely like these characters, then I think it, it's a pretty nice little drama. On to number six. Is it the long-awaited return or the one that should never have happened of American Reunion? Well, the problem with American Reunion is it's not funny enough. I mean, when I reviewed this, I said, no, the first American Pie film back in the late 90s was actually interesting because it took yeah. all the cliches of Animal House and Porky's and tried to do them in a very, you know, interesting slant. And then, obviously, with the sequels, that gradually peters out and they just go for the gross out. And the problem with this film is that it can't decide whether it wants to be a genuine, unashamed gross out film like the original, or something that's being nostalgic about how great it was to be disgusting, sex-obsessed teenagers. It's trying to have its cake and eat it. And everyone is clearly only doing it for the money. Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter at number five with Dark Shadows. Yes, Mark Kermode used to refer to her as Helena Cardboard Box when she was in her Merchant Ivory Ooh. period. I know, that was... And Michelle Pfeiffer. Ooh, I might go watch that. Yes. Um, it's calm not... down, Richard. Yes. <laughs> just think of... Just be calm and think about Dee Hepburn. <laughs> <laughs> It's not first-rate Tim Burton. I mean, like all of his films, it is very stylish, and Eva Green in particular, I think, is really enjoying herself yeah. as this vampish pantomime almost character. The problem is the film can never really settle on a single tone. It kind of lurches between pastiche and outright horror and sort of the fish-out-of-water story. Um, and the kitsch jokes do eventually start to run out of theme. So I think if you're coming new to Burton, then it's an okay place to start. But I would personally watch Beetlejuice instead. Right. Rom-coms now. It's Cameron Diaz, Jennifer Lopez, and What to Expect when you're expecting. Which is rubbish. I mean, it's it's yet another guest list comedy, this time about pregnancy. You know, th there are three basic problems with it. First of all, all the jokes about no pregnancy were done much better in nine months with Hugh Grant and Julianne yeah. Moore, which is a very underrated comedy. I really like Julianne Moore. Secondly, the characters are completely unbelievable. I mean, I, do you believe for one second that Jennifer Lopez is a troubled single mum? Could be tricky. Yes. Uh, so that's the problem. The other thing is that it's billed as you know, a film that covers all kind of realms of pregnancy. One's about a miscarriage, one's about adoption, one's about a caesarean section, one's about a natural birth. And yet all the couples are white, incredibly glamorous, and completely heterosexual. So it's, you, if you're going to do something which says we're going to cover the whole scope of pregnancy, don't just chicken out and you know, yeah. don't do the risky stories. And just, it's just rubbish. Talking about glamorous, we've got Scarlett Johansson doing uh, voices in Marvel's The Avengers. Yeah, it's more than voices, I think, because she appears on screen quite a bit, oh. uh, which is good. And I think you pronounce it Johansson, if she's to be believed. But that's not a criticism of you, because I think she's wrong. <laughs> I, I like it. Yeah, so... I really enjoyed The Avengers. I mean, I do stand by com my comment that it is the best we could have hoped for from what is essentially yeah. the studio tentpole to end all tentpoles. I think Tom Hiddleston doesn't convince me as Loki. I think he's a bit wet and, no, it doesn't embrace its silliness in the way that Kenneth Branagh's Thor did. But to his credit, Josh Whedon manages to get a good balance between the action and the characters. He's always been very good doing female leads, so Scarlett Johansson gets a lot more screen time and a lot more development than she did in her, than when her character was introduced in Iron Man 2, where she was basically, yeah. you know, paid to sort of turn up, flirt with Robert Downey Jr. and then put a cat suit on. Um, 
And no, they are at least trying in the midst of all the pyrotechnics to do the people trapped within the circumstances, which is the thing that's interesting about all these comic book films. So it's not perfect and don't see it in 3D, but it's good fun. And at number two, and this really is the long-awaited return, Sasha Baron Cohen in The Dictator. I, everything I've seen of that, I think it's brilliant. Yeah, where do you stand on Sasha Baron Cohen's earlier work? Uh, I think it's great. Mm. I think it's really, really good. I think he's just got an amazing uh, touch of comedy. I think he's uh, very good. I think he, he can be very funny. The thing with me is that I think Sacha Baron Cohen is at his best when he's doing something small yes. in which he's being reined in. I mean, for me, the highlight of his career so far is his cameo as Adolfo Pirelli in Tim Burton's Sweeney Todd, yeah. where he does that brilliant singing number where yes. he gets to hold a note for about a minute and a half, and he's brilliant. The problem with The Dictator is that, you no, know, when he's being given a free reign by Larry Charles, who is himself a rather overrated comedian, and I, know, I never got Curb Your Enthusiasm for some reason, um, the central gag about, you know, a dictator who has to embrace democracy, it, it just starts to plod and run out of steam, and I think that the whole third act is kind of so constrained by rom-com convention that the jokes aren't as funny as it could be. I mean, it's not a disastrous film, but it's just, it's not as disciplined as perhaps it should be. I look forward to going to see this one. Yeah. All the, certainly all the trailers I've seen just been outrageously funny. I think they're brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely like brilliant. I say, other opinions are available. <laughs> yes. And at number one. We may need some other opinions for this one. Men in Black 3. Yeah, now, curiously enough, I don't remember there being a huge demand for a third Men in Black film, because I, I quite like the original, and I remember yeah. going to see Men in Black 2 um, for my 14th birthday, I think. It was in the ODN Chester and was completely bored stiff. And now the story this time around is, you know, you have Agent J and Agent K, you know, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. Yes. And this time... Um, Agent J has to go back in time to the 1960s to find the young Agent K, who's played by Josh Brolin, um, to prevent aliens from invading the Earth because they're going to steal Agent K's mine and so forth. So Tommy Lee Jones, although he's heavily in the publicity, shows up for a bit at the end, and then he disappears, and then he comes back at the end of the film. Um, it's not as bad as the second one, because that did feel horribly perfunctory. I mean, the whole thing about Lara Flynn Boyle's character and the, the, some, a girl being the second coming is just... Yeah, a bit of a mess. Um, but it's just nowhere near as funny or entertaining as the first. It does... The thing about the original Men in Black was that it felt like a mainstream blockbuster which had a bit of character. It was slightly spiky yeah. and off-centre off and you weren't quite sure about it. I mean, it took about two or three attempts for me to get a handle on Men in Black. Um, this one just feels like it's, it's a lot of bits that have been put together by a committee and some of the gags work and some of them fall flat. So, better than the second but not much else. Which is a shame because Tommy Lee Jones is just brilliant. Yeah, I, I yes. do agree with you. Yeah. Anyway, recommendations. Well, The Avengers, if you haven't seen it already, um, Moonrise Kingdom, if you want a sort of arch comedy, and The Raid Redemption and Iron Sky, if you can, if you want something a bit more sort of trashy and B-movie, but in a good way. And I'll throw in The Dictator, but other opinions are available. Yes. Right. Radio Aid is coming to Annick a week on Monday, Northumberland Hall, raising money for Lionheart Radio. One of the bands that's going to be on, NE66. Lionheart Radio. Any 66 sand because you're young and Radio Aid will be at the Northumberland Hall here in Annick Monday the 11th of June starting at 6.30. Tickets £7.50 proceeds to Lionheart Radio should be a very good evening. Mm -hmm. Some really forward to that. good bands lined up. I may have to take my earplugs but I will be there. <laughs> Glad to hear it Richard. <laughs> this week's uh, cult uh, classic takes us back to 1971. Is it that long ago? Yes. Uh, Clockwork Orange. 
it's too long since we've had Malcolm McDowell on the show, so off you go. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, because we've been away for a couple of weeks, I thought, well, let's start with one of the, yeah. uh, back with one of the biggies, and you don't get much bigger than this. So, 1971 science fiction horror thriller based on the seminal 1962 novel by Anthony Burgess, was what it, which was itself very controversial. Um, there'd previously been two attempts to adapt it, which had been slightly aborted. There was a 1962 BBC... Uh, radio adaptation which just did the first three chapters you know before all yeah. the Ludovica stuff kings in which is a bit pointless and then in the late so in the mid 1960s Andy Warhol made a, an unofficial adaptation of it called Vinyl with his then muse Edie Sedgwick in one of the lead roles and the only thing that no it's a bit of a mess as a lot of Andy Warhol's films are but the films do share the starting close-up of Alex the Large which we'll come to Directed by Stanley Kubrick, who, no, needs no introduction. He Indeed. came to this yes. project on the back of 2001, which, of course, you know, won quite a lot of Oscars and was a very surprising commercial success. Um, he, as a result of that commercial success, he wanted to embark upon his dream project, which was to make a, a, a period drama about the life and death of Napoleon Bonaparte, which is yeah. something he struggled with throughout his career. He was given a copy of the, the novel of A Clockwork Orange by Terry Southern, who, with whom he'd worked with on the screenplay for Dr. Strangelove, and Southern, I think, was, was just coming off the back of writing The Magic Christian. Yeah. You remember how bonkers that was. Um, the screenplay was co-written by Burgess, but he was, again, controversially not credited. If you look at the opening credits, it'll just say screenplay by Stanley Kubrick. And Burgess had a very mixed relationship with the adaptation. Now, originally, he spent a lot of time, because he was a converted Catholic, all the outrage that the film got from Christian groups about it being immoral, he would go. He was the one who was sort of going around being almost Kubrick's whipping boy, so, you know, sort of justifying it and picking yeah. up awards on his behalf. But eventually, he got a bit resentful of Kubrick's relationship to him and to the extent that if you look at the, the rewritten stage version of A Clockwork Orange, there is a Kubrick-like character called Stanley whom Alex's gangs beat up. So that's Burgess <laughs> trying to get his own yeah. back a little bit, albeit in a slightly petty way. Um, filmed entirely in the UK on a budget of $2.2 million over four months, which made it the fastest film that Kubrick had ever shot. Yeah. You know, he has this reputation for taking years and years and years. Yeah. Um, it took about $26 million the first time round and was a big hit in the United States. It was also nominated for picture, unbelievably, losing to William Friedkin's The French Connection. It was, however, the subject of a great public outcry because of the, its subject matter and the extent to which it depicted violence, in the same way as Get Carter did around the same time. Um, Reginald Maudling, who was the Home Secretary when the film was released in the UK in late 1971, early 72, actually wanted to have a private screening so he could decide whether or not it was fit for release, to which yeah. Stanley Kubrick basically said, piss off, that's not your job. Um, the film, many people think the film was banned, but actually it was not officially, it wasn't like the BBFC stepped in. What happened was Stanley Kubrick withdrew the film from distribution after his, well, either his family received death threats or there were reports of copycat killings of people putting on bowler hats and jock yeah. straps and, you know, killing young ladies, which wasn't pleasant. And so he declared, take the film out of UK cinemas, I will own every print, and you cannot show the film anywhere until after I'm dead. So the film yeah. was eventually re-released in cinemas and on DVD in 1999, but before then, the only way that you could get hold of it was by importing pirate videos, usually from the Netherlands, funnily enough, where they yeah. seem to completely embrace it. So, whereas you have a lot of the cult films that we've gathered, that we've covered on this um, slot, are things that have been sort of 
more or less readily available but just slipped under the radar and only yeah. got gradually embraced. This was something that you literally couldn't get hold of unless you either A, lived in Europe, B, knew somebody on the underground, yeah. or C, had managed to sort of somehow get a spare print before yeah. it was withdrawn. So you had this film whose reputation built up over the best yeah. part of a quarter of a century. Yeah. And, you know, we take it for granted that we can see A Clockwork Orange freely and completely uncut in its ex-certificate form now, or 18 yeah. as it is now. So, And it now appears on quite a number of lists. It's currently number 60 in the IMDb's top 250 list, which is, you know, obviously yeah. audience rated, and the BFI put it at number 81 in their top 100 British films list of 1999. Yeah. So the plot is, it's set in a dystopian future England, which according to the novel is about the year 1995, and it follows a gang of four violent youths led by Alexander Delarge, who's played by Malcolm McDowell, whom we talked about ages and ages ago when we did the Mick Travis trilogy, so yeah. If a Lucky Man, Britannia Hospital, in which he's brilliant in all three. Uh, and the film, you Utilizes the slang of the fictional slang of NADSAT, which was a language invented by Anthony Burgess uh, to be a mixture of Russian and English. And so, to give you a flavour of the film, I'm going to read you the opening lines, which yeah. are in NADSAT. Uh, forgive my very bad impression of Alex Delard. That was me. This that is Alex, and the three droogs, That is Pete, Georgie, and Dim. And we sat in the Karova milk bar, trying to make up our razzodox about what to do with the evening. The Karova milk bar sold milk plus. Milk plus Velocet, or Sisamec, or Drencom, which is what we were drinking. This would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old ultraviolence. Gets off to a good start. Absolutely. So they're, they're four violent youths who, no, according to the poster, indulge in rape, ultraviolence, and a bit of Beethoven. Uh, and so they, the opening... 15-20 minutes is a montage of them going around beating up beggars on subways, fighting with rival gangs in an abandoned yeah. theatre, um, stealing money, and uh, eventually breaking into a writer's house, the writer being played by Patrick McNee, beating him up and you know, committing sexual assault on his wife. But eventually the droogs become a bit annoyed with Alex because they think, you know, you're not being ambitious enough, and they, they basically set him up by making him accidentally murder a woman at a health farm. They then smash a milk bottle across his face, temporarily blinding him, and he gets arrested. He's sent to prison for 20 years, but is offered a shorter sentence if he takes part in a new program called the Ludovico Technique, which is this you know, new means of rehabilitation being promoted by the then Tory government of the day. It's implied that it's a Conservative government, anyway. Uh, and so he accepts, and what happens is that he is shown a lot of films of violent acts, including stock footage from Triumph of the Will, funnily mm. enough, um, while being fed mind-altering drugs which are designed to condition him against violence, and he is subsequently released back into society, but now he no longer has any free will. He has become a clockwork orange because he is fleshy on the outside but is just a machine underneath yeah first of all it's Stanley Kubrick's best film I mean I I think Dr. Strangelove and Full Metal Jacket are masterpieces and no if you wanted to be very sycophantic you could say well all his films are brilliant and no just the, yeah. the best one is the last one that you saw and, and that's yeah. a bit no, sneaky in terms of a science fiction film and a literary adaptation it's unparalleled, certainly in its time. I mean, you no, know, you can point to sort of the to Star Wars as being the definitive sci-fi film of the seventies in terms of capturing public imagination. But if you're actually looking at in terms of pushing the the envelope in a given yeah. genre, Clockwork Orange is streets ahead of it. Uh, it's been called everything from the first punk rock movie, which was what Steven Spielberg called it when he was interviewed by the AFI a few years ago, to right-wing propaganda, as Roger <laughs> Ebert thought. Although yeah. we'll come on to that, and even looking at it. 41 years later, uh, it's still shocking and sharp and disturbing yeah. as it should be. And I do think it is an absolute masterpiece of storytelling and substance with Kubrick at the very peak of his powers. 
if you had to sum up the film in one word, I mean, there's all sorts of ones you could use. I mean, disturbing, controversial, shocking, offensive, funny. But the one that we really have to satisfy is mesmerizing. It's a really, there are, there are some films in which, you know, you, you're kind of in the zone with them when you yeah. watch them, but you're aware of stuff going on. Whereas this is like Mulholland Drive. It's hypnotic. From the second yeah. you hear that first haunting chord from Walter Carlos's soundtrack, you kind of forget that there's a world outside of your living room and you're in the same place of Alex and there's, and there's that fantastic opening shot of Malcolm McDowell staring at us in, in centre camera with his head slightly down like yeah. a hypnotist would and when he's saying you are getting very sleepy. Yeah. Uh, and no, once you get into that it is impossible to look away. Spielberg when he was contributing to the, the, the documentary Stanley Kubrick, A Life in Pictures, which came out about 11 years ago, he said, you know, um, I challenge anyone to name a single Kubrick film that you can turn off when you start watching it. He's got some kind of failsafe. Yeah. I mean, I would make the argument that Eyes Wide Shut, maybe, if you're not in the zone with it, but other than that, I think that's yeah. quite a good comment. Um, like I say, one of the first mem most memorable features of the film is the music. I mean, we tend to think of it as being one of the, you know, the great... Stanley Kubrick pioneered the use of classical music in popular filmmaking, yeah. obviously, with The Blue Danube in 2001. And on this occasion, he's collaborating with Walter, later Wendy Carlos, who would also do the soundtrack for The Shining for him. Yeah. And so you have this blend of classical music on the one hand and electronic music with synthesizers on the other, excuse me, and... You no, know, you have this, these wonderfully uplifting renditions of Beethoven's Ode to Joy, which are sort of playfully deconstructed and put on harpsichord. So instead of being a sort of boom, 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 it's a do, 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 do. It's much more sort of jaunty yeah. and playful yeah. and tongue-in-cheek. And when you get to the Ludovico sequence where, you no know, Alex is being shown films of Nazi war atrocities, they riff on certain military themes as well. I think there's a bit of the Liberty Bell if you listen to that very carefully. Um, much like Blade Runner, the visual world of A Clockwork Orange is conceived as the future that might result if certain aspects of the society that we know in terms of the society that was in the 1970s were extrapolated. I mean, in the case of Blade Runner, it's a film very much about the threat of overpopulation, environmental problems, the intensification of social hierarchies, and losing humanity in a world that's dominated by machines. Whereas in A Clockwork Orange, you have the alienation of youth, the dehumanization yeah. of mankind, and most chillingly, the acceptance of dehumanization as a form of controlling criminality. Which, I mean, if you read stuff about sort of lethal injection or chemical castration, which is still practiced in certain states around the world, we haven't exactly moved on from that. No, indeed. I mean, yeah. would you have seen no, Clockwork Orange before it got banned, or would you have been no, too young? No, I'd have been far too young. Can yes. you remember where you first saw it, when it was re-released? No, I can't. Yeah. Uh, probably, no. You wouldn't have rushed out to, to scoop it up on DVD? Uh, no. Okay. Um, so, like all great dystopian science fiction, what matters about Clockwork Orange is not the surface resemblance, but the underlying moral and social problems that it brings out. I mean, there's loads of people, when we, when we talked about Blade Runner, lots of people would look at the film and say, well, you know, set in 2019, but we're not there yet. There's no yeah. flying cars, there's no, no, everything's not in Japanese, it's not raining all the time. And so a lot of people might look at a Clockwork Orange and say, you know, look at the tacky 70s fashions, look at the yeah. multicolored hair, look at that. And also, thugs aren't dressing up in bowler hats and jock yeah. straps, they're in, no, they're in Burberry and tricky <laughs> bottoms. Yeah. But the point is it doesn't matter yeah. because the moral questions are still controversial about it. I mean, there are, there are multiple interpretations to any of Kubrick's films, but um, I'll divide it into sort of the three differing schools about the film, each of which has some degree of validity and you can kind of make up your mind as to which one you go by. The first, which was the, f the 
the interpretation of the, of the initial reaction to the film by the likes of Roger Ebert is that it's actually a conservative work about youth and rebellion, which is posing as something that's more yeah. radical than it is. I mean, it's either a reaction to the empowerment of young people saying, you know, oh, these young people are not going to take over the world and make it a better place, they're going to kill us all. Yeah. Um, and, you know, depicting that, or it's... If it's a if it's a film appealing to young people, it's actually a call to arms, saying no, actually don't just sit in mm. lecture halls doing demonstrations like Vanessa Redgrave. Actually, get up and beat people up, and no, let's take to the streets. I mean, both views accused the film of glorifying violence. Roger Ebert, who took against the film quite strongly, described it as a right a paranoid right wing fantasy masquerading as an Orwellian warning. Personally, no, that, that has some knee-jerk appeal because, of course, this was at the back end of the counterculture movement when it was, you know, either in its death throes or, yeah. or turning nasty. I mean, you, you look at things like Altamont, where the Hells Angels destroyed the Rolling Stones concerts and people got killed. There was a feeling of the whole peace and love thing turning sour, and so a lot of people looking at this from the outside would think, yeah. well, this, this is where the so-called hits the fan. But I do think, in general, that's rather wide of the mark because, yeah. no... I, th I think Rodriguez is a very good film critic, but occasionally he kind of misses the irony in these kinds of films. The second interpretation, which I think has a lot more validity, is that it is a film about the warning against state power and how reconditioning can undermine individual freedom to such an extent that the whole notion of individual freedom is irrelevant. Yeah. Um, and that's when um, Michel Simon, the film critic and, and theorist, was interviewing Kubrick about it. One of the things that he picked up on about the film was the presence of lots of communist or socialist architecture. Because yeah. a lot of the building is set entirely around London, and a lot of the buildings are kind of concrete jungle flats and uh, underpasses and that sort of thing. Stuff that looks like it was, no, built on the cheap by well, government. There was a sort of a bit of a presumption of the future back in those days, wasn't there? That, yes. Uh, the Soviets would take over. Oh, yeah, reds under the beds and yes. so forth. So, uh, yeah, certainly that was something to pick up on. Um, but basically you have this, this idea that although there is that concrete jungle stuff, it's a society that is emerging from socialism and there's a kind of a malaise surrounding yeah. it. In the same way as you get a malaise in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy where you have you know, the old yeah. wartime ways being gradually you know, rendered more and more irrelevant by the, the onslaught of the Cold War, and the ultra-violence practiced by Alex and his droogs is part of the fallout of that. And that's consolidated in the use of NADSAT, which gives it a Russian feel, but also makes it timeless. Oh, there's another fantastic example where, at the beginning of the film, Alex and his droogs are fighting against another gang in the theatre who are trying to you know, rape a young lady. And Alex, in the background, shouts this fantastic speech, Ho, ho, ho! Well, if it isn't fat, stinking Billy Goat, Billy Boy in poison. How art thou, thou globby bottle of cheap, stinking chip oil? <laughs> Come and get one in the yarbles. If you have any yarbles, you eunuch jelly thou. <laughs> it's just brilliant. Yeah. Um, and the film is a continuation of Kubrick's fascination with the social and political mechanisms that conspire to dehumanise and imprison individuals. Yeah. So, you know, in Doctor Strangelove, it's the absurdity of mutually assured destruction. In Full Metal Jacket, it's, you know, perfect machines going wrong and how, you know, you create someone with a thousand-yard yeah. stare and then they turn on their masters. And in the case of Clockwork Orange, it's the most subversive because it, it asks you to, to sympathise with someone who is effectively a psychopath um, <laughs> to warn about, actually, no, these people need freedom. And, you know, it's, yeah. a, it's in many ways a close cousin of Peeping Tom in that regard because, you no, know, the, the, the good guy is someone who's completely insane or at yeah. least has pretensions towards being insane. Um, and so once Alex gets treated of his crime, 
you know, he becomes incapable of crime, but he's also incapable of other human actions such as self-defense. And there's a sequence in the film which is very difficult to watch where he is presented to the prison governors. And to prove that he cannot fight back, he is given sort of two tasks. And one is that he is beaten up by an, uh, a, an actor uh, called John Clive, who, if you know your 60s film, is the uh, the guy who looks after Charlie Croker's car at the start of the Italian job. And right. mentioned that he must have shot an awful lot of tigers when he's counting the money. And then he's subsequently presented with a topless girl and thinking, no, he, no I'll, I can seduce her. Yes. And there's that famous sequence of him putting his hands up towards her breasts and then starting to feel sick and he can't do it. So it's a demonstration that the treatments worked. Um, and in order to subsequently prevent him from threatening society, you know, the state have destroyed Alex's self and he tries to commit suicide for the simple yeah. reason that he can't do good or bad anymore. There is a third interpretation to the film, which is, you no. Know, basically saying, you know, both the previous films are to do with who's right and wrong. You know, the first one says we're, the authorities are right, the second yeah. one says actually the authorities are wrong, whereas the third one says actually morality has got nothing to do with it. It's all about power. It's all to do with Alex being manipulated as a puppet to control people. I mean, Kubrick went on record as saying, you know, the writer and the scientists who are conditioning Alex ha have only different methods. They are exactly the same motives, which is, we want to influence public opinion, let's use Alex as a kind of guinea pig so that we can test our yeah. theories and so forth. And there's that, you know, brilliant... No, there's a brilliant thing in the film about the way in which sex has become a double standard in society. Because when Alex goes for a, what he calls a bit of the old in-out, in-out, it's, it's seen as criminal. Whereas the state has seemingly no problem about law-abiding prison officers staring at a, a scantily clad lady, or doctors getting it on in hospital, and the, or that sort of thing. So, you no, know, there is a kind of very, or of course the phallic sculptures yeah. of the cat lady, we you know one person's art is another person's crime and trash and so forth. I mean, whichever review of View of Clockwork Orange you embrace, it's a brilliant black comedy. The singing in the rain sequence where, you no, know, he, Malcolm McDowell beats up Patrick McGee, you no, know, whilst doing the Gene Kelly number, is, it's one of those things where the first time around it shocks you, but then the more you think about it, the more you get pulled into the joke. And I do think yes. it, it's... And apparently Gene Kelly shocked and never forgave. Yes, and apparently also the reason that Singing in the Rain was included is because that's the only... You no, know, Kubrick asked Malcolm to sing a song, and that was the only one he knew all the lyrics to. So right. it wasn't completely their fault. Um, and also you have the kind of the... the in, in line with the black comedy, the absurdity of the character. So, you know, Aubrey Morris is the deranged social worker who is kind a, a bit of a pederast. Um, Patrick McGee is the writer who is driven insane by Malcolm McDowell. There's a wonderful scene of him, you know, giving Malcolm McDowell some spaghetti to eat and him sort of cowering over him going, Food! All right! I'm pleased <laughs> to appreciate good wine. If you know Patrick McGee, it's all yeah. massive eyebrows and big eyes. Um, and then Alex subsequently in the hospital where he's being asked to put captions to yeah. the pictures and just say, Cabbages! Knickers! Uh, it's not got a beak! Yeah. So there's really good stuff in that. Obviously, it's impossible to talk about the film without mentioning Malcolm McDowell. Now, yeah. we both think he's a brilliant actor. Yeah. And having done If, he was the ideal choice for the part. And basically, he is stunning for every second that he is on screen. He's got the snarling boyish looks, the precocious posture, the fabulous voice. I mean, everything, even just a little kind of flick of his hair when he takes the bowler hat off is just wonderful. And once you've seen him in that iconic costume, you know, with the, you know, the, the eyeballs on his collar and you know, the, the, the immaculate boots and so forth, nobody else can carry that yeah. off. I yeah. mean, it, you know, for everything else that McDowell did in his subsequent career, good and bad, if he'd done nothing else, yeah. it, that would have immortalised him. 
brilliantly directed by Kubrick. I mean, he was often accused of being a very clinical and cold director who was only interested in ideas rather than people, because the whole thing about 2001 yeah. is the most human character is a computer. Um, but the best moments in A Clockwork Orange for me come when the technical and the empathetic combine. I mean, there's a sequence where, for instance, there's the slow motion sequence on the lakeside where Alex beats up his droogs in slow motion and you see him very slowly slicing into Warren Clark's hand. Now, 18 certificate, you know, you know what you're getting. But he uses those slow motion and those dolly shots to really convey the pain and the anguish of the characters. So there's a very, well, horrifying but also very funny sequence of Warren Clark looking at his hand and sort of going... <gasps> in slow motion while yeah. there's sort of Beethoven's fifth in the background and it's very well done. So to sum up, because we are running a little short of time and we need to get to the new releases, it's the greatest film of the 1970s, it's Kubrick's best film that mesmerises from start to finish, Malcolm McDowell is absolutely stunning and it's second only to Blade Runner as the greatest film of all time in my book. This is the fresh sound for the district, live, live from, from Attic. this is Lionheart Radio. So next week's cult film 2010, Kick-Ass. Yes, um, Matthew Vaughan's uh, latest, sorry, last but one effort which has a sequel in the works at the moment. Oh right, okay. Shall we have a look at this week's new releases then? Yes, we should. We'll start with Prometheus. Okay, new film by Ridley Scott, whom I think is great. Um, I've spoken at length about my love of Blade Runner. I think Alien's a masterpiece, Gladiator's a masterpiece, American Gangster is a very underrated throwback. I mean, he has made some rubbish like a good year, but even at his weakest, he is a very visually inventive director who understands actors and has an ability to create a unique visual world. It started out in life as a direct prequel to Alien, which is very dangerous. Um, subsequently became a film that was set in the same universe as Alien, but many years before it. Uh, so the story is that a group of, ar of archaeologists led by uh, Elizabeth Shaw, played by Numi Rapace, uh, find a star map on the outskirts of Scotland uh, which they believe shows the origins of many human creatures and therefore evidence of extraterrestrial involvement in the creation of Earth. So it's a bit Eric von Daniken. Uh, and uh, they travel to a distant planet where they find an ancient civilization which, you know, as we know from Alien, looks a bit like the paintings of H.R. Giger and discover that this civilization may actually spell their end for reasons that I can't go into without spoiling the plot. I mean, it's been absolutely hyped to the gills, and no, no, because people think, oh, Return to the Alien series, Ridley Scott returning to science fiction, which he said he wouldn't do unless he got a really good script, so this must be good. Suffice to say, if you go in expecting another Alien film, you will be disappointed because the fact, despite all the alien trappings and the common ingredients, you know, the space jockey and the, the xenomorphs yeah. and so forth, it's actually closer to Blade Runner because it is a film which is interested in about the nature of humanity and therefore the origins of humanity. You know, there's all kind of yeah. stuff. On the plus side, it is a proper science fiction film insofar as it is about ideas. It's no, the whole thing of no, where do we come from? And the, the title comes from the Greek Titan who stole fire from the gods and there's a big nod to 2001. There's no questions about religion because the, the lead character is, is a Christian who has a crisis of faith and uh, no, whether the presence of humans on earth does more harm than good. There's the corporate paranoia which is present in Alien. You have Michael Fassbender's character who is an android and Michael Fassbender apparently was basing his performance on David Bowie's and The Man Who Fell to yeah. Earth, which is a very good sign. I mean, it is flawed insofar as not all the ideas gel together and the characters aren't as well developed. And whereas in Alien, the best bits were always kind of the low-key conversation, like Yaffa Koto saying, I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. We're not getting paid enough. And Harry Dean Stanton going, right. <laughs> um, this is much more speechy. So yeah. you, know, you do get out loud discussions about philosophy which is no slightly awkward but there is still plenty to captivate and enjoy you 
don't expect another alien and don't see it in 3D, but um, go in with reasonable expectations. Right, at the other end of the spectrum, I suspect, is, uh, is Top Cat, for which Robbie Collin from the Daily Telegraph wrote, it is a grievous insult not only to the original cartoon, but animation in general, and also arguably cats. There's <laughs> <laughs> a good, a good starter. Yes, <laughs> I read Robbie Collins' review, actually, because he used to write for The Sun, and uh, he, he's, he's, he's got his head screwed on. I would also recommend that you check out Pete Bradshaw's review in The Guardian, in which he set his review entirely to the original theme tune, and it's very witty. So, it's a Mexican adaptation of the, the much-loved Hanna-Barbera cartoon which series. Which was brilliant. Yeah. I used to love it. Uh, I remember seeing the original cartoons when they were repeated on... BBC Two on sort of 7.30 on a weekday morning along with sort of the Snorks and yeah. Smurfs and so forth. Um, so, no, it's based on the Hanna-Barbera cartoon series, which was itself a kind of knowing pastiche of Sergeant Bilko because it had all the kind of the yeah. Phil Silvers spoofs. So the story follows Top Cat and his gang, you know, Brains, Benny the Ball, all those characters that you know and love, who are not fighting Officer Dibble, but his replacement, Chief Superintendent Strickland, who is trying to round them up and get them off the streets with this new robot police, and they have to kind of get revenge nah, and get back on the streets. Same with that Dibble, though. Exactly. I mean... <laughs> One of the charms about the original Top Cat series was the fact that it was old-fashioned flat animation and you kind of knew that it was rolling backdrops and you knew that it, no, yeah. it, it was wisecracking, but it was good. This is a complete fallacy because, no, if the original charm of, the, of Top Cat was its flat animation, why would you put it in 3D? I mean, it just sounds completely stupid. All the adults like yourself who will remember the cartoon fondly and will have yeah. may have seen it the first time around will just go looking and think... Well, that's my childhood down the drain. You've taken something that I loved and turned it into yeah. a nakedly commercial project. But if children go to see it who no, may not have seen the original cartoon, because it's not that big anymore. I mean, it might still be repeated, but it's, it's not exactly at the forefront of the yeah. public culture. They won't really see the appeal. It's, it's not funny enough. It's cheap. It looks... The animation looks tawdry. Apparently, most of it was done in Flash and then converted into 3D, you know, it's a, which is not great. It, it's just a crushing disappointment. I mean, I, I kind of thought, okay, when I saw the posters, well, no, half-term hit, take the family along, it might be okay. But it's just lowest common denominator rubbish. One of the greatest theme tunes of the TV series. I loved that. I used to sing along to it. Yeah. Lol is next. Okay, um, it's a, a remake of a French film with the same name from 2008, uh, and like the original, it's directed by Lisa Azuelos. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, the story follows a girl called Lola, played by Miley Cyrus, who is affectionately known as LOL, um, who is starting a new year of high school. She's just broken up with her ex, um, rather painfully, and she falls in love with her best friend called Kyle, who's played by Douglas Booth, and she goes on an emotional journey in which she discovers, to quote the Rotten Tomatoes synopsis, while Facebook status is easy to change, true relationships are worth the effort. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. Where did they come up with that one from? No, oh, it's Lionsgate as well. So, no, here's the thing. There was a French film about four years ago called The First Day of the Rest of Your Life, which was a really great little drama. Yeah. And that was a film about, you no know, looking at five days in the life of a family over five decades. And it had a whole section where the daughter character called Fleur was sort of growing up and falling in with the wrong crowd. And, you know, and uh, there's one sequence in where she falls in love with a guy who's obsessed with the doors because it's set in the 1970s. And so you instantly think, okay, he's obsessed with the doors, run a mile. I like the doors. 
but I don't like people in films who are obsessed with the doors. And now, that was a very touching film, uh, which if you haven't seen it, it's, it's very easy to get hold of. It's a hidden gem. This is just very flimsy and a bit dull by comparison. I mean, the original French film didn't have much to say. Yeah. And all the remake does is it kind of takes all that stuff and gives it an American sheen. I don't hate Miley Cyrus as much as a lot of people. But the film is just very flimsy, and you should watch the first day of the rest of your life instead, because it has a lot more to say. Next one, Snow White and the Huntsman. Will the Disney lovers hate it? Not as much as Mirror Mirror, I think right. it's the fair thing to say. So it's the second version of Snow White to turn up in cinemas this year. Like I said, the other one being Tarzan Singh's Mirror Mirror, which was Total Pants. It's the debut directorial effort by Rupert Sanders. No, it's unusual to get someone making their debut with this bigger, no, a big, this bigger film. And it essentially marries the Snow White story of the Grimm's Fairy Tales with Joan of Arc. Because what you have is, no, the story, as you know, involves Snow White, played by Kristen Stewart, who's in Twilight, yeah. uh, being sent off into the woods by the Wicked Queen, played by Charlize Theron, whom I think is a great actress. And she orders the Huntsman, played by Chris Hemsworth, who is, of course, Thor in the Avengers and has that deep, booming voice. <laughs> Although apparently in this film he's pretending to be Scottish, which doesn't quite work. Uh, so she sends the Huntsman to kill her, but it turns, because it turns out that the Queen needs Snow White's heart to preserve and regain her beauty and then oh, there's a bit of that at the start of the disney version uh but instead of you no know, killing her the huntsman lets snow white go free she teams up with the dwarves and becomes a kind of joan of arc figure in battle armor who's going to take over the kingdom and you no know, depose the evil queen obviously it's better than mirror mirror because it's not so pathetically misjudged i mean mirror mirror took all the substance of the grim's fairy tale and turned it into a lowest common denominator slapstick comedy and it was yeah. really you no know, it was really disappointing and it does at least have something in between its ears insofar as it's trying to do something with the design i mean it is a kind of pop video aesthetic and all there's not all the cgi is that yeah. good i know a lot of people will take against Kristen stewart because of the whole anti-twilight thing which has got way out of control for the record I don't think this is her finest performance, but she's a perfectly decent actress. You know, it's style-driven. It doesn't do, you know, what Angela Carter's Company of Wolves did in terms of getting into the sexual subtext of the fairy tales or any other subtext. But it's better than Mirror Mirror. It's better than Red Riding Hood. It's better than Terry Gilliam's The Brothers Grimm. It's quite enjoyable so long as you don't think about it too much. Right. On to Art House now and the Turin Horse. Yeah, which is... Um, a new film from Hungarian filmmaker Bella Tarr, which he says apparently will be his last film. Um, it's set in Turin in January of 1889 and follows the event that led to the collapse of the um, German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. For those who don't know, um, basically on January the 3rd, 1889, Friedrich Nietzsche was wandering through the streets of Turin. He saw a horse being mercilessly flogged to death, ran over to the horse in sympathy, put his arms around the horse's neck to protect it, and collapsed in the street. And subsequently, he had a massive mental breakdown, which led to a couple of strokes, and spent the last 10 years of his life in the care of his younger sister, who subsequently distorted a lot of his writings, and therefore yeah. led to his work being adopted by, well, amongst other people, Adolf Hitler, who sort of used Nietzsche yeah. as a justification for all his evil deeds it's a very poetic piece of filmmaking though know, it's bellatar so it's a lot of long takes and very deliberate pacing you know, it's about the encroaching darkness of the 20th century which would like i say would be shaped in certain part by a misinterpretation of nietzsche's ideas of ubermensch and so on and so forth personally i i think it's okay but if you want a film about that sort of creeping dread over europe there's a film by michael hanneker called the white ribbon which kind of does the lead up to World War One, but using the touchstones of Village of the Damned. And that's a much more interesting and much more successful film from about three years ago. So, yeah. Cheering Horse is fine, but 
white ribbon is the one you need to see. And finally this week, huge critical acclaim, slightly less acclaim from the audience. It's um, the new Ken Loach film, and it's The Angel's Share. Yeah, and it just won the jury prize at Cannes, for the record. Um, so it's a new film from Ken Loach, which is normally a good sign. And the story follows a young man called Robbie, who's played by first-time actor Paul Brannigan. Who is, who is accused of GBH but avoids being sent to prison because of the fact that he's just become a father. So he is given community service working in a whiskey distillery where he discovers in the usual kind of great plot contrivance that he has a magnificent nose for whiskey and can identify <laughs> different brands by smelling them. And so he is, um, you know, he goes on you know, a journey that w which will change his life. The title refers to the small amount of whiskey that evaporates from the barrels when it's being stored. Yeah. So it's not the angel shed. It's yeah. quite a nice way of calling it. I mean, all the posters and the trailers are billing this as the first feel-good comedy of the summer. I mean, if you've seen the trailer, it's got that great quote saying, The Scottish Full Monty on it. Yes. And we tend, we tend to forget how harsh bits of the Full Monty are. I mean, obviously, the, the, the overall tone of the Full Monty is great fun, and I really yeah. love the film. But there are bits in the Full Monty, particularly the start, when it is a bit downbeat and a bit yeah. sort of, well, it's, it's, you know, that's, it is kind of like Ken Loach. Um, I think the film works because of the fact that Ken Loach is so good at marrying social realism with uplifting storylines. I mean, the common theme in all his work is if you gave misfits a chance, look what they could achieve. Yeah. And, you no, know, I think that this, you know, is as good as looking for Eric. I'm not sure it's quite up there with Kez, insofar as I think a lot of Ken Loach's existing fans may feel he's going a bit soft-hearted in his old age. <laughs> but it is genuinely yeah. charming. It doesn't fall into the kind of twee conventional pitfalls. And, you no, know, it, it's, it's good scene, but even if it's not up to his classic work. So why isn't it getting the audience's love if its critics are falling over it? Well, I'm not sure, to be honest. I mean, yeah. it might be to do with the distribution yeah. that not enough people have seen it. Yeah. Or, we shall or the feel-good promotion yes. might be putting people off, yes. of course. We shall see. Anyway, thank you very much, Daniel. Are you back this Thursday? Yes, I am. One, two, three. We should say that the film of the week is Prometheus. Um, and yes. the angels share as a reserve, but... Uh, Right, okay, yes. and uh, I'm back next, well, I'm actually back on Monday morning for the bank holiday, but we'll be back next Saturday between 8 and 11. The cult film will be Kiss and I've got loads of guests in the studio before 10 o'clock looking ahead to the Olympic flame coming to Annick and Places, and we've got a few of the runners coming into the studio to look forward to it. Should be good indeed. Have Brilliant. a great day. Bye. Radio, the voice of Northumberland.